Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Our guest today is going to be Razib Khan, and we're going to talk about the state of the academy and science and how that interacts with the wider society and political correctness, all that sort of stuff. Our guest today is Razib Khan, who is that rarest of all creatures, a conservative scientist. Uh, Razib is a geneticist by training and blogs at GNXP. Uh, Welcome to the program. Hey, um, so it was nice to meet you guys. Um, I know you, Josiah, and uh, Mr. McCullough. I do not actually know you very well. Well, it's good to get to know you. Many uh, wonder about Doug, a few know him uh you know he's a man of mystery i suppose you could say (laughs) okay okay and so um what do you guys i mean why don't you shoot josiah and like it is in texas so you can shoot like uh what's the first thing you want what you want to you know talk about because there's a lot of things we could talk about because i am a man of many interests passions and uh feelings (laughs) so uh, i figured we would talk one thing that we wanted to talk about some issues related to the academy and science and other things like that Mm -hmm. so one, Mm -hmm. one thing that happened recently was there was a revelation that a group of academics had been basically uh, writing fake papers for these cultural studies journals. So sometimes, you know, uh, if you if you think about, you, you read uh, what gets published in some of the academic literature and some of the humanities stuff, and it kind of kind of seem like parody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as it turns out, some of it was parody. Mm-hmm. Uh, they mm-hmm. were kind of publishing these fake articles to make the point that these disciplines really can't tell reality from BS and, and uh, mm-hmm. all they care about is, uh, you know, political conclusions, so, something like that. So what, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, the first thing that I have to say is uh, the three co-authors, uh, I just, you know, whatever qualms I might have about the details, uh, I do feel they are on the side of the angels. Um, I know Helen Pluckrose a bit um, on Twitter, and I am friendly with much of her circle, who self-identify as left of center, which means that they're actually fascist, uh, according <laughs> to the SJW um, political compass. Right. So, oh, um, and and uh, SJW, for people that don't know, is, is short for social justice warrior. And so this is someone particularly online who, if you were to, you know, say male man instead of male person or something like that, they would get on your case, right? Yeah, that's very problematic, um, Josiah. And also, I prefer male were, because male. the original <laughs> Anglo-Saxon for man was were, and man only became gendered, apparently, in Middle English. Just, you know, putting that in there. All right, um, there you go. So. Good, good. So I can I can, I am actually quite fluent in social justice ease. So um, you know if you if you follow me on Twitter, like most people know that I occasionally will drop into that dialect, but I am not of that subculture. Uh, but in any case, so you have these liberals because these are all liberal, you know, secularist, anti-postmodernist, very sympathetic to new atheist intellectuals, and they wrote a bunch of basically. Um, you could say fraudulent or parody papers. This is basically um, Sokol version three, and as most of the listeners probably know, and if they don't know, they should. Um, a physicist in the 1990s, Alan Sokol, 
uh, wrote a parody paper on like quantum mechanics that he submitted submitted to a uh, literary journal, and it was all gibberish. And Sokol himself is a socialist, kind of an old school leftist, and his point was that uh, there was no there there in some of these uh, French inflected fashionable um, disciplines. And, uh, you know, I mean, like, say, like, uh, coming out of Lacan, Derrida, all these, like, standard people, they often get bracketed under postmodernism, but it's actually quite confusing what that means. Um, And, you know, Josiah, honestly, when you say humanities, I mean, what does that even mean? Like, I don't even know if I consider these humanities. There's some scientists on on Twitter who who are saying this is social science, and I'm like, have you talked to an economist about this? Just, you know. (laughs) I mean, yeah. I don't, you know, it's, it's like there's a lot of semantic issues and a lot of the discussions um, have been people talking past each other. So, you know, I want to get out there that um, they are on the side of angels. Broadly, I am on the same page with them on a lot of epistemological issues. Um, I do identify as a conservative just because I don't want to get sent to the gulag. But um, I don't have too many disagreements on very deep fundamental issues with these people, right? But um, I do have to say I have a lot of correspondents, people who talk to me, who are in academia, who are research scientists, and my world is mostly in genetics. So the further you get from genetics, the fewer and fewer people I know, okay, just just for the listeners out there. Um, in any case, they did reach out to me, and many of my correspondents are, I would say, centrist. There's a few um, libertarians. There's one other conservative um, geneticist that I know of, and I won't name the person because, you know, I don't want to out them, but, you know, it's a very... Um, center-left crowd, but they often feel oppressed by these radicals, the far left on campus. Um, the way I would explain it to you know the audience of this podcast is uh, scientists are almost all liberal, but their project as academics has very little to do with their politics in any deep way. And, you know, so they get a little confused about what's happening in what you just called as the humanities, but really they're the studies where they don't study anything, right? So it's an, it's yeah. an arm of political activism in the academy. And even if scientists in general are liberal and agree with a lot of the um, positions or aims of these activists on campus, they're not entirely comfortable with it. Some of them are actually opposed to it because, you know, just in terms of practicality, this is causing problems with perception of academia from the right, right? But right. some people, some people did message me, and they they did say that they were actually not happy with the fact that they put the fraudulent papers out there into the system because the way peer review works is, um, you know, often you try to give people the benefit of the doubt, and the reality is there are papers, even if they're not necessarily fraudulent, that are just really bad that get published in biology or physics and computer science, all sorts of disciplines. So there is a separate orthogonal issue about the way academic publishing works. And there's a conflation, I think, um, between that and what they did here. And the example that I will give that I think might speak to your audience is one of the reviewers, I believe, I don't know if it was the dog park is rape culture um, paper, but it might. And just to to describe this paper, you know, as a parody, so there, there are, uh, there's a lot of academic literature out there about different aspects of culture uh, that are part of what's known as rape culture, which is just, I guess, society teaching people to rape and that rape is okay and stuff like that. And so this, this parody was basically talking about how if you go to a dog park, 
uh, your dog might be uh, might just go up and start sniffing another dog or something without obtaining consent, and that that was somehow feeding into the broader cultural support for sexual assault, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. uh, basically, they just, yeah, they threw a, buzz, a bunch of buzzwords one in like there. prizes for being such a trenchant analysis. So. Yeah. And I'm not sure if it was that one, but one of the papers, the reviewer um, was kind of um, mocked uh, for trying to give sincere reviews. This person actually um, was trained by one of the few out sociologists who are conservative that I know of, my friend Gabriel Rossman. I don't know if you guys know him. So uh, I, I think uh, I follow him on Twitter, maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, I know Gabe. Um, he's conservative. You know, he's Catholic. Like he's, you know, just a standard issue right of center person. So he trained this guy who did this review. So it's not like all of the reviewers um, were left wing radicals. So there's there's some issues with this so-called version three in terms of the fallout. Um, but ultimately, brass tacks, substantively, like, are these fields real fields? Um, right. If you ever read any of these papers, um, I think you would have to conclude, like, okay, like, this is all posturing. I mean, it's a cliche, but it's posturing. That's my perception. When I've tried to read the papers, when I've tried to engage, um, you know, so, I mean, they're correct, but there might be some issues with how they went about showing this. And, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I thought the science wars were over um, in the 1990s. Why are we even talking about this? What is going on? There's some deeper social issues that are going on um, that are being smoked out here because, you know, we had, you know, in the 1990s, we had several books written about the science wars and it seemed to be over. Um, it seemed the science had won and that we all believe in science and there's the Internet and all these amazing things. Why are we still having this discussion? Something is going on in our society and, um, you know, that's what we need to address because, like, this is a war that's over, so why are we fighting these battles, is, what, is how I'm feeling. Right, but, but I guess before we go there, I guess uh, talk, you've kind of touched on about this may or may not be problematic. Talk about the, I guess, the ethics of this. Uh, you know, I, I look at it this way. I'm, I'm like the master of playing the game Balderdash, mm -hmm. and I'm very good at it, yet I don't use that skill in my, in my daily life. Um, I try to actually be honest why, you know, is from your perspective, is this uh, is this unethical what these hoaxers did? Um, well, it wasted a lot of people's time. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I don't know if you guys have done peer review, but I mean, some people do a very cursory job and some people put a lot of time um, into it. And I'll be entirely frank. I have done peer review and sometimes I've been a little more cursory because I'm busy. And other times I've done line by line comments and edits and and stuff like that. So um, there's the whole culture of, of uh, academic publishing that's developed since the 17th century. And eventually it's like given rise to peer review in the 20th century. And there's all these norms and um, they violated some of those norms. Now that doesn't mean that the scientific publishing culture that we have today was created in year zero and that's just like part of the universe, right? These are just a cultural norms that exist and they took advantage of those norms. Sokol one, I think it was a novel thing at the time. I think the issue right now is like, why are we still doing this? We all know, quote unquote, that these fields are, I don't even know if like, it's not that they're fraudulent, it's that they are basically linguistic games with a minimal level of coherency and contingency within them, right? So um, Noam Chomsky, who is no rightist, 
um, said many years ago when it came to like a lot of these postmodernists, um, you know, he feels like when he reads the paper, he doesn't really know what they're talking about. And then if he spent some time, he still wouldn't know what they're really talking about. Okay. Now, if you read that, like, you know, I'll give you a concrete example for me. Um, you know, I, I know some statistics just because in genetics, there's a lot of statistics. I can read an economics paper, look at their model, look at their statistical analysis. And if I put the time into it, I can actually make an evaluation whether this is a real paper or not. Okay. So economics has a language that is accessible, that is, co that is commensurable to other disciplines. Um, it has a set of standards of like, you know, logic and evidence. Well, maybe not evidence so much depending on what's modeling, but you know what I'm saying, right? These these um, fields um, emerging out of critical studies, they're very about interpretation and subjective viewpoint. And it's almost like their incoherency is a feature. And I will say, um, back to Chomsky, um, he knew, I think it was Lacan, he knew Lacan, one of the um, you know, eminences in this field, and he said he was a really great guy, but he also said he was a total fraud, in terms intellectually, okay? That was, that was Chomsky's evaluation. And so I think it, this is almost not a political issue, as it's an epistemological issue, and um, it's become politicized somehow. And uh, partly because if the people in critical theory can say that the people that oppose them are fascists, then the center-left type people who are conventional realists uh, won't want to say anything because they don't want to support fascists. If, yeah, be, if, if being opposed to this sort of stuff is a white nationalist talking point, people aren't going to be opposed to it. Yeah. Let me say one thing about the ethics issue, and that is large chunks of social science research are based around deceiving people about various things, right? So... There is, for example, uh, a literature out there. There's a lot of studies that try to show uh, racial bias in hiring by sending people fake resumes, and the res you know some of the resumes have stereotypical black names, and some of the resumes have stereotypical white names, and there's you know there's a, all sorts of stuff for job interviews, other things like that. Uh, that's all fake, right? A uh, lot of so psychology research, even if you are aware that you're in a psychological study, they are misleading you about what the purpose of the study is sometimes, you know, perhaps for a understandable per point that if you know what the study is about, then you're not going to be getting the, the results are going to be kind of tainted. Right. But I just point out that you know, I don't I don't see the ethical issue as being that strong just because this is a feature of a lot of research, you know, and it's, uh, mm -hmm. the only thing that's different here is potentially that the people who are being deceived are other academics as opposed to, you know, civilians or normal mm -hmm. people. Okay, I find all of this a bit unsettling. I have a son who's approaching the college age, and I have to wonder if he can still get a, a college education that's going to prepare him for a good career. Um, should should I be concerned about the the state of academia? Should I start directing him sort of to go more of a micro route and and look for a vocation? When I was a teaching assistant, uh, the, the uh, many of the students could tell that I was uh, eh, more conservative or at least not like incredibly liberal, just because I wouldn't say certain things or I wouldn't answer certain questions. And so, more conservative students, um, quite often Asian American or Christian, uh, would would approached me to talk to me just about their issues at, you know, in the UC system. 
And, um, you know, mostly they were pre-med, very smart. They knew how to get their A's. You know, I mean, I graded them. I knew that they were smart, right? Um, and they would privately tell me that some of their courses, they knew exactly what to say, but they didn't believe it at all. But they knew what they needed to get an A, and they wanted to go to medical school or vet school or whatever, you know? So they wanted to get an A. And, you know, they were kind of bothered by it. But at the end of the day, they're just, they're careerists. They're just trying to get through it and get a job. So if you look at it from a careerist perspective, it's not that big of a deal. The issue is like, do you really want to know things? Are you a scholar? And that to me is the bigger problem because there are plenty of scholars in the academy, but now there are also activists who aren't scholars at all. And then there are these other fields. Nobody really knows what they do. Um, some scientists are so ignorant, they call them social sciences. They don't know what they, they don't know what they do, but they're busy with their lives. And so there's no one minding, you know, the store here. Um, so I don't know what the long-term consequences is, but I think contagion will occur. Um, there are issues within science where this critical theory type perspective is, um, it's starting to become more prevalent and scientists are actually starting to get worried, but they have no idea how to respond because most of them are on the same political side notionally, right? How do you deal with your own in-group? when your in-group is acting crazy. You need to have outsiders. But the administrators, well, I mean, that's a whole careerist perspective where they just want to kick the can down the road and there are no conservatives and not many moderates in academia. So you have the system that's kind of like going towards this final terminal equilibrium state, I think. Um, that's what I perceive. And when I tell my, my scientist friends this, they don't necessarily disagree. They're not excited about it. But I mean, yeah, it's like that, the truck is coming down this way, you know? And no one's going to tell people that you need to, like, get off the road. It is interesting if you think about the spread of these sorts of ideas and arguments, uh, anti-arguments in some way, in that, uh, you know, the, the whole point of these sorts of arguments is that certain people are not allowed to have opinions about questions, right? Mm -hmm. or the, the well, they can the have opinions, opinion. but they can only agree. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. You're yeah. supposed to. You, as a white male, should listen to me as a person of color. Right. But I mean, I got my personal color card revoked because I'm right wing. So <laughs> never mind. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that initially, it seemed to be fairly limited uh, within uh, even certain segments of the humanities. So not even, you know, all of the humanities, but basically things that had studies at the end of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that seems to have kind of spread out a little bit so that now it, it, these ideas or arguments are becoming more prevalent, even to some extent in scientific fields, uh, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, I'm not entirely sure why that is. One, you know, one thing that occurs to me is that this sort of, um, you know, I think we have to remember that even within the academy, uh, not everybody is a is a genius, right? So you have a distribution. There's a lot of people who are, uh, you know, a little mediocre, but they still have to write papers, you know. Uh, yeah. And one advantage I think that this sort of critical theory approach has uh, that's sort of similar to what you saw in previous generations to Marxism or Freudianism or whatever is that you know there's a there's a little bit of jargon uh, there's a little bit of you know it takes a little bit of time and intelligence to master the ideas but but not all that much and once you do it the number of different topics that you can write about is 
basically endless. I mean, you you know, once you once you master these critical theory ideas, you can apply it to almost anything, and the papers almost write themselves. Mm-hmm. So even people who are not the most brilliant can have a research program to to try and get tenure. You know? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, there is a there is a Python script that's going around where you put in certain variables and it writes the paper out and they submit it and it gets submitted. Right. Yeah. Exactly. No, I just made that. I just made that up. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I actually think it's true. I think it's true. I think you could write a program that would write this stuff and it would get accepted. Right. Yeah. There, I mean, there, there are uh, there are. I know that there were like postmodern uh, random paper generators or whatnot. I I, I don't know, but, but yeah, it's basically. It's all you know. It's almost paint by numbers, and that's why I think some of the parody stuff about like the dog park or whatever uh, works is because you know they they are just it is just applying this particular form of argument to you know a, a new and slightly different subject, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's all that you know. Well, I mean, what? or Jane Austen. Uh, yeah, and one of the things that I would say, um, just like a personal perspective, when I was uh, like. Back in the, the 1990s, the greatest decade that ever was, um, I had a really close friend, and she uh, she is now a tenured professor um, in this field. Uh, she's I think in her, I think her department's gender studies. Um, in any case, back then she would tell me things like science is superstition, and um, you know she would emphasize how language constructs reality, and uh, I would laugh, like I would laugh heartily at her silliness. And she's the one with a tenured pr- position at a research one university. So who's laughing now? Um, you know, I honestly didn't take it seriously because there's nothing there. But I think what we're finding out is on some deep level, postmodernism and critical theory does describe an aspect of human nature that is true. And that is that we can construct our own reality if, I, if we put our mind to it. Um, so long as it's not about like getting on an airplane or something like that, you know, but this sort of like malleability and reconstruction of reality. Um, well, I mean, there's something to that and they're executing, uh, you know, their own playbook, like they're eating their own dog food, as you would say, in the startup world. So William F. Buckley came to prominence back in the 50s, lambasting academic freedom and the idea that of these academics pursuing their own interests and such. Is that part of the problem? Because if, you know, it's, it's fine for these academics to, to have these theories and pr- pursue these ideas on their own time. But, you know, people are actually paying them for, for an education, parents mm-hmm. are paying for their kids' educations. Should, there, should, should we consumers have a little more, ins, you know, more mm-hmm. say about what actually goes into these college educations since we're paying for them? Well, I mean, the I, taxpayers are paying for them, too. Exactly. So, I mean, I have a... I have some pretty strong opinions on this, which I have made known to my academic friends. Basically, I think all public universities, I think conservative movement should stop worrying about the marginal tax rates sometimes and worry about what they're putting into their children's brains. Because, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a little more money in your bank account if your grandchildren think you're an evil person. Right. (laughs) So um, public universities, um, we should look at how they're funded um, and how they're, you know, run and try to transform them into vocational institutions, not like uh, technical institutions is, like, I guess, what I really mean. Um, there are sciences that are practical and useful, like at land-grant universities, which obviously should be funded. They have direct... It doesn't matter if your um, agronomist is a socialist. They will still do agronomy, right? 
The problem is, um, you know, whatever verities or truths or what is good and noble, in some of these humanities disciplines, and let's use the word humanities to describe them, um, they are actually counter-narrative or they invert um, all that we, that most people hold true, right? And so why should we fund, why should I fund this through my taxes? You know, like, let's not talk about what's right or just. It's just like, I mean, I should have a decision on what my tax money goes to, right? And so if they're all bundled together, um, we need to talk about, like, whether even, like, some of the more abstract sciences. I'm an, I'm an evolutionary geneticist. I love that stuff. But, I mean, if the cost of that is to have, you know, these, these fields, I mean, I'm not sure if I would even want to pay for it. And scientists need to start, like, asking themselves, like, do they want to allow themselves to be bumbled with this? So, yeah, I mean, consumers need to take action. But really, I think it's going to be a policy decision where politicians are going to start looking at these universities. And some of it's already happening, like in Wisconsin um, and also in Florida with Rick Scott. I know a lot of academics were outraged, but um, I actually agree with a lot of their viewpoints because, like, there needs to be public feedback into these public universities. Private universities, they can do their own thing, you know? Um but, like, I think we need to start – public universities, um, like, 75% of BAs are from a public university. So that's a huge effect. And, you know, they're run by the state. Why, I mean, UT Austin, I mean, it gets its money from the state in large part, not extent, not exclusively, but in large part, right? So, I mean, why can't the public have more input? So Hungary, actually, I think just yeah. recently announced they're getting rid of all their gender studies departments, right? Yeah. Because yeah. they, they said, ah, we looked at it, and it doesn't really – help people get jobs and you know there's yep. not it's not really worth it so and as we know what happens in as goes hungry so goes the world right eventually uh that's been the trend line lately anyway uh so well i mean okay i mean part of it is also going to be driven by like scarcity um in terms of like you know we're, we have an aging population you have to allocate resources and remember, a lot of these institutions, they, they like a lot of state universities don't get their money mostly from the state anymore. That's more seed money. Um, the private sector and and the alumni um, determine a lot of things. So, I mean, I think there needs to be some consciousness raising, some coordination. And this is not just a matter of conservatives. Um, it's a matter of a lot of people. So you know what happened at Evergreen State. A lot of the people that opposed it who were parents so why, why don't you, uh, yeah. for some of our listeners, why don't you go into a little bit of detail about what happened in Evergreen State? Yeah, uh, basically there were a couple of professors and like, again, um, I will just like, I don't know if it's like conflict of interest, but I, I know the wines, Brett Weinstein, who was a professor at the center of this a bit. Um, right. But in any case, not well. But they were bit. biologists. That's the yeah, problem. they're biologists. So of course I know him. You know, he's an evolutionary biologist. I think he works in behavioral ecology. In any case, um, so basically he is a liberal, but he was a little worried about some of the um, uh, anti-white or like, you know, like identity politics issues at Evergreen State, which is a very, it's basically like a state-supported Oberlin. Okay, yeah. that's, that's the way I would describe it um, in Washington State. And um, there was like a day of absence where supposedly um, all the non-white people don't come to campus to show how the campus can't run without non-white people. And then they were saying, well, maybe we should keep white people off campus. And I mean, at some point, apparently, Brett Weinstein um, said, um, you know what, like, this is ridiculous. Uh, on some academic mailing list, word got out, and then activists accused him of being a white supremacist and a Nazi. And just by his last name, you can judge that he's probably not a Nazi, but, you know, this is 2018. Um, and 
it got to the point where he was actually physically threatened. Um, there was, I mean, I don't know, we're not supposed to use the M word, but the M word, you know, mob, there was, there was a little bit of that going on. There, there were, I mean, there were social media pictures of people of like groups of students with baseball bats looking, like they said, we're looking for this guy, right? Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They were, um, they were, they were, yes. Uh, they, the Google them, the images are funny. Um, but, uh, yeah, and you know the cops. Apparently, the the campus police said like, don't go to campus today because you know people are looking for you. They're asking people in cars. It, it was really creepy, and I can tell you that um, a lot of biologists actually have come up to me in conferences and have wanted to talk to me about that because they know that I'm a safe space. I guess um, I won't judge them because I'm obviously on the pro Brett side, and I, uh, I mean. I don't want to like talk about this in detail because like I don't want to out anyone, but I mean I have be been physically. Um, I mean, basically, I was attacked once at a conference because of my politics. Okay, I mean it's not always friendly. I mean, when people have alcohol in their system, um, some hostilities can come out, right? So I don't think Brett was uh, necessarily, you know, being paranoid. Like something could have happened. And biologists, a lot of them were actually pretty scared because some of the stuff he says about sex differences used to be pretty traditional and mainstream and a lot of biologists have told me that they think a lot of this gender stuff is like getting a little out of control um but you know brett was left left you know out to dry um he was not supported by the other faculty even though a lot of them privately supported him just the standard stuff and um he decided to go on tucker carlson i think or fox news because that was the only media covering it and then people were basically doing a little victim blaming and saying, why did you do that? You're supporting these evil people. And then he's like, well, these evil people are the only people supporting me. And so Brett still identifies as a person of the left, but now he became part of the intellectual dark web. He lost his job, basically. They kind of pushed him and his wife out because um, the controversy, you know, the lack of safety around him, the security. Um, and then, like, the knock-on effect for Evergreen State is, like, they, their enrollment is dropping, Okay. And some of the interviews in Seattle newspapers, and I'm from the Pacific Northwest, so I, I know a little bit about these newspapers and these parents, and they're not, they're not conservative people from Eastern Washington. Um, they're professionals in the Seattle area. And I mean, they have some of the same questions that um, you guys do in terms of like, what am I paying for here? You know, these are probably people who vote Democrat every single election, but they want their kids to actually learn something and have some skills and not run around campus with pink hair and baseball bats i mean that's that's not what are you paying you know what is the state paying for and there is some inquiry from the legislature in washington um about this going on um last i checked so um right now i mean the the school is in severe retrenchment mode but this is showing you that even though there's outside um input into the system trying to give a signal to these institutions because they're so homogenous you know, no one wants to get on the elevator first. No one wants to say that the emperor has no clothes because they're going to get excoriated. Look what happened to Brett Weinstein. So anyway, that was the, that was the Evergreen State thing. So one last issue that I just want to touch on, which is also related to the Academy. So there's currently a lawsuit. A uh, number of folks have sued Harvard, alleging that uh, Harvard admissions is discriminatory against Asian-Americans Mm -hmm. uh, I think that there's, there's probably some pretty good statistical evidence uh, in in favor of that. That yeah, you know, it's kind yeah. of a uh, a soft uh, 
uh, but cap on you, you know they the administration basically wants a certain percentage of the population to be Asian, and that's the percentage that gets in regardless of year-to-year changes in the quality of the applicants. Uh, so uh, what what you've written about this issue? Mm-hmm. Uh, what you know? What is your perspective on this? Yeah, I mean, so I, I have a lot of heterodox views um, as a conservative, but on this issue, I'm not heterodox at all. And in fact, even before I was highly political, I took a very skeptical view of race-based affirmative action. Uh, and there are reasons that I do, um, and that's for a different podcast or a different blog post. But so I start off being actually very favorable to this critique. But setting that aside, my own viewpoints, I think there's some lacunae or uh, gaps in the media treatment of what's going on. So first of all, um, I think, you know, Harvard engages in a lot of doublespeak in public, and they're allowed to because they're Harvard, and they're smart, and they're powerful, and a lot of important people went to Harvard, including in the mainstream media at places like the New York Times, or if not Harvard, Yale, you know, I mean, these sorts of issues. So they can say all sorts of things about how, well, you know, we have objective measures and it turns out Asians just, they don't rate highly on personality. Now, if it wasn't Harvard, I think people would be like, wow, that's problematic, but it's Harvard. And do you really want to get Harvard on your case? No, you know, Harvard is on the side of the angels. So I think there's some skepticism, there's some lack of skepticism of some of their claims because Harvard is not, I think Ed Bloom is the lawyer who's leading this and he was you know, behind Abigail Fisher. Um, so the mainstream media it is it putting some kid gloves on there. I, I think we can all agree that there's there's some they're they're putting some um they're they're fine-tuning it in a way that they want a particular outcome. Now what I read of the Wall Street Journal yesterday, which was interesting, is they have two hundred parameters that they use. Um, my immediate thought when I see that you have a model with two hundred parameters is that you can tune the parameters however you want to get your output that you want. So they don't actually need to have a quota. All they need to do is like reweight the parameters in a way where they get the percentage of Asians, uh, the percentage of legacies, the percentage of like super rich kids, percent of unrepresented minorities that they want, and they can say that they don't have a cap. It's just the objective criteria and their weighting system, right? That's how I would do it. I would just like run a simulation, randomly like you know mo- modify the parameters, and then get the output that I want to, and then set those as the weights, right? Um, I don't see this discussion in the media at all, partly because most people. You know, they can't decompose dueling regression models. I hope people are more conf- more skeptical of regression after this because, like, high-level economists are having disagreements about this. Um, so, I mean, I think Harvard has a goal. They're very clever in what they want um, to do to get to that goal. So I'm skeptical that ultimately anyone's going to be able to change what they do. Now, we were talking earlier um, about scholarship and, you know, universities. Like, what is Harvard all about? I think the issue that we have to remember is Harvard is not Caltech. Um, Harvard is about power. It wants to maintain its power. If Harvard's demographic distribution looks like Stuyvesant University, they will have less power. Harvard needs to let in rich people, legacies. Um, also, that it needs to let in underrepresented minorities because some of these people are going to be part of their leadership class. And you can't have the leadership class all be Indian, Korean, and Chinese, and Japanese. That's just, you know, race matters to the public in terms of who they elect. And so Harvard needs to fine-tune that a little. Now, Asians are overrepresented, so they allow for some overrepresentation, but they would undermine their standing as an institution if they allowed purely academic criteria to allow Asians to do to Harvard what has happened to Caltech or Stuyvesant. I mean, who knows 
what Stuyvesant High School is or Bronx High School of Science. Nobody knows culturally, and that's because the nerds that graduate from those high schools make things. They don't say things, right? And so Harvard is about saying things and telling people to do things and politics and leadership. And leadership is not, you know, Rajiv Chandrasekhar or whatever, you know, who wants to do topology. That's not leadership. So let's be honest about what they want, right? So I think um, that's what's going on there. As far as conservatives go, you know, we like let's say use the we here, we're very skeptical of race-based affirmative action for a whole host of our own reasons. And so we're trying to use this, which is fine. That's what you do. It's the game of politics. And, um, you know, Bloom is very smart and Harvard is very smart. And one of the comments that I've made is the media is not that smart and they're going to be manipulated into saying whatever these two camps want to say. But the truth is this is a battle for power at the commanding heights of American society. So one thing that you know, talk about heterodox opinions, I, I'm generally not a big fan of race-based affirmative action either. However, I do sometimes wonder if it might not be better to just uh, not only have race-based affirmative action, but you know, just outright quotas yeah. for this reason, that the demand from administrators to, you know, for what are effectively quotas or functionally quotas is so high that realistically you're never going to be able to ban it, right? You could say, okay, we won't have affirmative action anymore. Then as you say, uh, they will find some, you know, sneakier statistical way to achieve the same thing uh, that may end up costing a lot more and Mm -hmm. could have a lot of uh, uh, knock-on effects. uh, Yeah. I mean, I feel for higher education, like I'm actually converging to that viewpoint because I'm sick of the cant. I'm sick of the doublespeak. Uh, I'm sick of the deception. And it's just, it's exhausting. And we know what the outcome, the, the, the you know, dominant, you know, group demands. So like, let's, let's figure out a way to make it a little more transparent, a little more clear and distinct, and then move on to like the next issue with representation and diversity, which, you know, I did talk about in a blog post. And that is the fact that um, there's very few white Christian conservatives at Harvard, which is a problem if you have alternating, you know, administrations where sometimes a George Bush or a Donald Trump will be elected. And if they're totally alienated from the academy and in particular the elite academy, that's actually kind of a lose-lose. Mm-hmm, right, because you need you need good people to be able to uh, advise the parties and staff the administrations and yeah, good good people good people like Brett Kavanaugh who went to Yale. Right, exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we're gonna have an issue where there will be smart, wealthy, powerful people from these conservative backgrounds who might start avoiding these colleges and institutions, no matter their prestige, because what's the point? You know, and ultimately, if you get an engineering degree from University of Michigan or Vanderbilt, you're probably not going to make that much more money over the long term than if you get an engineering degree from Harvard. So the benefits of a Harvard degree vary depending on what you want to do. There's really huge returns on investment, obviously, if you want to be a Supreme Court justice or if you want to be a national level politician. But there's not that many people that are going to do that. Also, if you want to go work at Goldman Sachs or, you know, one of the big Wall Street banks. On that cheery note, I think we will end it. Uh, Razib, thank you for joining us today. 